Last night, during the time of prayer, I sang a song. Uh, who knows John Wesley? Well, he didn't write the song. Because his brother Charlie. Um, and I'd like to, for us to sing it, because it's my, probably my favorite hymn. It's these words, and that's the first person that's too big. So I'm going to sing it. I'm going to risk singing it a cappella, and hope that when I sing it, you can join in. Yes, that's true, Mark. You can do it. It goes like this. This, this is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as great as his power, and neither knows measure nor end. Jesus, the first and the last, whose spirit shall guide us safe home, we'll praise him for all that is lost, and trust him for all that's to come. I mangled the words a bit last night, but we're going to sing that as our benediction just now. Just a few things that I want to say this morning. I mean, we've already had a lot. I'm just putting this here so that I can read my notes because otherwise it's. Um... The Lord has already spoken to us, but I think that. I'd like to say just a few things this morning about the Sermon on the Mount. And then, um, I think, I'm not sure whether I'll conclude it next week before then, or whether it'll dribble into then. But I want to talk about the way in which the gospel and the kingdom turns things upside down. You know, the image that I gave the first Sunday we spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. But I'll come back to that next week. This week I have a simple thing that I want us to understand about. So hopefully it will not be too long. But I need to step back to where we were last week. Last week I asked a question about how do we live lives that are right? The Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus coming and saying, this is what it looks like to live a life that is right in terms of the way God created us. How God intended what God's will is essentially. What is righteousness? Those are kind of big words for us as Christians. What is justice? Those are weighty words. And they almost seem not to have anything to do with the way we actually live. But the word in Greek is dikaiosune. That's, dikaios is what's used in its various forms throughout the Gospels and the New Testament to describe the sense of the rightness of things. Justice. So you will find it translated in various different versions, but they're all trying to grapple with what the meaning of this word is. And I said to you, how would you define holy? And I think, as I said last week, my friend's definition of holy is the best that I know. It's that we bear the family likeness. We like our dad, essentially. And 
We come down hard, I think, in a sense, on the Jews because they did a bad job of it. So they had the Ten Commandments, and then there's Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers and all these things that they had to do in terms of their public and private lives. And they messed up. Not so? And God then said, well, you can have a king, and they continued to mess up. And by the time you get to Jesus, where Jesus is walking in the hallways of the temple and around Bethlehem, they have, at that stage, refined what it means to be a um, good Jew. And they have now got 316 rules. Ten, we know the Ten Commandments, but they've got another 245 commandments that they have to live through. And 365 prohibitions, one for every day of the year. Here's what Jesus says in the um, Matthew 5. Here we are. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law with the prophets. I have come not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your dictation, your sense of being holy, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees had got to the stage where um, to avoid breaking the third commandment, they, they essentially refused to, to actually name the name of God, just in case. They got to the place with sexual temptation that they used to walk with their heads bowed so that they didn't actually ever get to look at a woman, just in case. And there were, there were a group of Pharisees who were so strict about this, they were called the bleeding Pharisees. Because they kept walking into walls and falling off stairs. <laughs> Seriously, it's true. <laughs> to avoid breaking the Sabbath, there were 39 activities that were deemed to be work and you couldn't do them. You were not allowed to travel on the Sabbath. And to give you an example, they used to say, well, what do we do if we were on a ship? We travel it. So there was an exclusion made for if you're on water, then you are not breaking the Sabbath if you are moving going beyond the, the, the allowed distance you could, you could move on the Sabbath. So rabbis, now if they take the train and they're strict observers, they have a cushion, a water cushion that they sit on, <laughs> so that they are traveling on water. It becomes bizarre, but the point is, Jesus said, here's the law, and you guys have not fulfilled it. And I'm coming, and he says to them in chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard it was said. And he says that to them several times in the first, uh, what we call the first chapter, chapter 5 of Matthew. He said, but I say to you. And then he seems to make it worse. Well, he does make it worse. If you think of what he does, he says to them at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I said to you last week that you can translate that as complete, whole, mature. But he's saying, without any problem, that he's saying, God your Father is holy, be like Him. 
That's exactly, essentially what he's saying. And around this whole nub of be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect, he's talked about loving enemies. He's talked about giving away your money. He talks about forgiving. Later he says 70 times 7. He, there's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He talks about murder and then says it's, not, it's even more than that. It's about being angry. It's even more than that. It's if you call someone a fool or stupid. He said it's not only about adultery and doing the stuff and being caught doing it. It's about whether you actually think and do it in your heart. And so we could go on about the Sermon on the Mount, but you get the idea that it's almost as if Jesus says, this is what the, the law said, and I'm going to move the, the dial up. And if one's honest about reading through this Sermon of Jesus, or this, this first talk that he gives about the kingdom and what it looks like, you've got to see it and say, this is exceptionally hard. How do we do this? And I think that if, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this morning that I want to try to give you a key for the Sermon on the Mount that makes it understandable that when we read it, we read it with a certain set of lenses. And the key is grace. It is just simply, it's grace. You see, we have Christ in us the hope of glory, as Paul writes to the Colossian church, he says, we have Christ in us. That's the hope that we have of being able to, what's glory? It's being able to live and manifest the full presence of God, His, His glory. We can do that because we have Christ in us. And that's the point, is that we have the sense of God being in us and with us. So I want to say this. The Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, is not firstly or primarily a blueprint for behavior. That's the first thing to get in your head. This is not a blueprint that if you can tick all of these things, you're pretty, pretty okay. <coughs> That's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to take a law and make another law and then say, now let's see if you can make it work. We know that the Jews couldn't do it. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He is not trying to say a whole bunch of things that will weigh us down and make us feel bad about ourselves because we can't do that. But he's trying to set us free. So how's he doing that? And it is simply this. All these words tell us what his father looks like. It's as simple as that, action. What Jesus is doing as he goes through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount Describing his dad. He's saying, This is who my dad is. Why should you love your enemies? Because your father does. Why should you be perfect or mature, or complete, or whole? Because your father is already there. Why should you be generous? Why should you live lives of extravagant kindness? your father's life. Why should you live without fear or worry? Because you know that your dad clothes the lilies of the field and he feeds the sparrows, he'll look after you. 
It's who he is. Why pray? Why love? Why accept one another unreservedly? Why forgive those who wrong you? Because that's what your dad is like. And what Jesus is saying all through this whole passage is that this is the character of the Father. And when we are called to be dikaiosune, righteous, which is what this whole thing is about, when we talk about righteousness, it's okay. When we talk about righteousness, it's about this whole thing of bearing the image of our Father. And I want to say that there is no sense in which we are able to measure up to this on our own. What Jesus is saying is he's showing us the family. He's saying this is this is who the Father. And this is what it looks like if you want to bear his image. And is there, is there a distance between what Jesus holds out and what we understand of the Father and me? There's a huge chasm. I never match up. I completely mess up. I, I, I start and then I fail and then I start again and I start again. But you, you see, here's the thing. That's, that's the grace. The Lord's mercy is on you every morning. Great is his faith. If we slip and fall, all he asks is that we ask forgiveness. And our Father forgives us. And he 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 continually forgives us. Until somehow we twig. And that we realize I'm forgiven. And then we twig further that, oh, this is what he's asking me to do. And so when Brenda wrongs me, I forgive her. When Gail wrongs me, I forgive her. When Derek wrongs me, I forgive her. And that's what it means to live in freedom. We don't suddenly, because we call ourselves Christians, suddenly we, we manifest all the likeness of our parents. We grow up into it. There is the discipline, the self-control that Ian talked about, about making the choices on a daily basis that make us more like our dad. But that's essentially what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And Jesus is, is, is coming and he's saying, you guys can't do this. You can't do it. Have you got five more minutes? Because I'm going to do one last thing. And it's got nothing to do with Matthew 5 or 6 or 7. It's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 20. And we've called it the parable of the workers. And you know this, and I'm going to read it to you because I've, I've, I've printed it out in a different um, version because I want, I want to use this. For the kingdom of heaven is light. A householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing, agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about, about the third hour, he saw others standing unemployed in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right slash just, I will give you. So they went. Going out, Again, in the sixth hour and in the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, that's 
One night ago before closing time, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here unemployed all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, Go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the Lord of the vineyard said to the steward, Call the laborers and pay them the wage, beginning with the last up to the first. And when, they, when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on re receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, and have we, we who have borne the burden of the day and in the scorching heat. But he re replied to them, Mr., I am doing you no injustice. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and leave. I choose to give to these lost as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or is your ev I evil because I am good? So the first will be lost and the last first. A few things you need to understand about this parable that Jesus tells is that landowners during the time of Jesus and before and after generally didn't get their hands dirty in any of the work. They had managers who actually did all the work. And they basically had the manager go, sort things out, and come and report back. But five times on this one particular day, so it was either it was pruning or it was harvest or it was some time where they needed extra labor. Five times in this day, he goes to the place where they congregate, waiting and hoping to, to, be, to be taken on for, for a day that they can actually just put food on the table for their family. In South Africa, in the, in the poorer areas, you will find mainly men congregating on the street corners and guys will stop with their pickup trucks and these guys run because they are day, day hire laborers, basically. And they will climb on. They don't even know at that stage what they're going to get offered because they're desperate for some work to put food on the table. And so he, he agrees a fee, a sum, a day's wage with these guys. And they accept. Then he goes back three hours later. And then he goes back again and again. And even back to almost closing time, he goes back and there's still guys who are standing there who have all day waited, hoping. They weren't chosen the first time or the second or the third time. They were still hoping that they could do something in terms of looking after their family. The second lot, he says to them, which I think is fabulous, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. He doesn't agree at a sum. I hadn't noticed that before, but he doesn't actually agree on an amount. And the sixth and the ninth and the eleventh, he, he, he basically just says, go. Go to the vineyard too, to the eleventh hour. And the question is, why was the owner even there? Because right in the middle of this parable, suddenly the steward pops up. It says here, when the evening came, the Lord of the vineyard, and there's a specific word that, you, that is used at that point in, in, in the 
in all the old Greek manuscripts, kurios, the word that's used for Lord. The Lord of the vineyard said to the steward, suddenly the steward pops in. He surely is the one who is now supposed to have been going and fetching all these other laborers. What did they claim properly? Wasn't there an organization that know that it was either harvest or pruning or whatever it happened to be? And then there is this thing where he says to his steward, call the neighbors and pay them the wage. It's specifically that. It doesn't mention the denarius that was Pay them the wage. Beginning with the last up to the first. Now that's surprising. Because he, he's setting this up. Because if he paid the first guy, he, he paid for the whole day. That's what the agreement was. And that's what they said yes to. And they worked. They don't know what was agreed with all the other guys. And so if he paid the first guys first, they would have got their bucks and off they would have gone quite happy. And then the second and then the third. And the guys who got paid the same wage at the 11th hour would have gone, wow, but there would have been no one to see them get there. He, he inverts the way, the way of payment. And he says, pay them the wage. And all of them are being paid the wage. And so what you have is this, this sense of something building. Because the 11th hour guys get a whole wage. And the 9th hour guys get a whole wage. And the 6th hour guys get a whole wage. And the, the guys who start at the beginning of the day are, are thinking, oh. And when it comes to them, and they get the same as the guys who worked for, say, 45 minutes, they are outraged. That's the word. They are, it says here that they, they grumbled. But the word has way more weight than that. It's more than just grumble. It's the sense of, what is going on here? And essentially, Jesus is saying, this is your law. You are all equal. And what he does is he, we can go into what it does to wages and labor and ethics and all that sort of thing. But basically what he's saying is that if I choose to be gracious here, that is my choice. And what Jesus is saying is that your father, this Lord, who has this vineyard, he's gracious. It doesn't matter whether you are Simeon, who's been waiting in the temple his whole life just to catch a glimpse of Jesus, or this murderer on the cross, with whom he says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's his prerogative, because that's who he is. He is graceful. He is merciful. He is compassionate. This is who your dad is. And what Jesus is doing, when he does all the parables of the kingdom, when you see, like in Matthew 13, he told them a parable about the kingdom. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this. All he's doing is he's reinforcing what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Your dad is so compassionate, so graceful, so merciful, so kind, so generous, so loving, so accepting, so forgiving, that he can't help himself. And he says, that's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means to be just. That's what it means to be holy. 
we'll look at it further next week, but essentially, we can't do it. And that's the, that's, that is the beauty of this. We can't do it. It's only Christ in me that is the hope. It's as I submit, as I rest in Him, that I'm set free. As I recommit myself every morning, every day, every moment, the choices I make, as I'm focused on this, the Lord of the vineyard, that my life is shaped and changed. Sometimes in the twinkling of an eye, Dostoevsky, you know who he is. He, he was a bit of a naughty bloke. And he was sort of stoking the fires in the Tsar's court. And he was arrested. And what they did with him is that they, they, they set the whole thing up. They purposefully, he didn't know this, but amongst others, they were taken out, they were put in burial clothes, white robes. They were blindfolded with a firing squad. They were sentenced to death. He was sentenced to death for his insurrection and all the stuff that he was provoking against the Tsar. And they heard the cocking of the rifles, and then a horse rode up. They all planned, all staged, but they didn't know, and he didn't know. And there was this pardon at the last minute. And they took the blindfold of he was sent into exile for 10 years to a prison camp, etc., etc. The story goes on. But the point of it is this. It absolutely revolutionized his life. And as he was getting on the train to go, an old lady gave him a New Testament. That's like sealed the deal. And if you read the brothers Karamazov, you've got the, the, the one brother who's got all the capacity in the world to analyze all the mistakes, all the difficulties, all the political systems. He's super bright. And you've got the brother who's the priest, who just exudes love. He just understands. He's, he says, I don't know. Essentially, he says, I don't know, but I do know love. And, and, and what, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, it's agape. We move from where we are, whether it's murder, anger, bad language, adultery, lust, whatever it happens to be, we move from that towards, always towards others. Because that's how our death is. Sometimes it will be this moment where the light switches on, and other times it will be like the sediment of, of, of building up over many, many years, and suddenly you realize it's changed.